as you know, we've been tracking through what book? Philippians, okay? And uh, it's a pretty amazing book. The occasion for the book, that means the timing of the book, Paul took an occasion to write it, and it was that he was sending Epaphrodites from here on, uh, because that's a tongue tangler, I may just say E, okay? He was sending Epaphrodites back to the church at Philippi. Epaphrodites was from that church, and they had sent him to minister to Paul while he was in prison. Back in that day, if you wanted to talk to somebody or get information to somebody, you didn't just text them or call them or email them or Snapchat or FaceTime or whatever new came out today. Uh, I was talking, we were talking to Carol this morning, and Neil has a sat phone, that's a satellite phone, and in the village, halfway around the world, in a very remote area, he can call his wife. That's amazing. And I asked Carol, did you ever imagine that? And she goes, no, when we were in, first went to the village, we walked in, and it took three to five days, depending on the weather. I mean, this is like in the middle of nowhere. And so... Communication is instantaneous, right? We have grandkids around and friends, and, and I get texts from people all the time. It wasn't that way back in the time when the New Testament was written. And if you wanted to get a hold of somebody, you had to send somebody there. And most often, they took the opportunity to write a letter. Most of the New Testament epistles, the letters, that's what they were. They were letters written and delivered to people, individuals, or churches where the apostles couldn't get to for whatever reason or another. Paul wrote this because he had, was hoping to send, he was hoping to go himself, but he was a little tied up, so to speak. Well done. The first service didn't even catch that at all. <laughs> You've had more time for coffee this morning. He couldn't get there, and he didn't know if he was going to get there. Interestingly enough, I'm not going to preach on this this morning, but if you look at Paul, he was very confident in the will of the Lord that he would be delivered and get there. Guess what? That didn't happen. There are times when we're very com convinced that the Lord is calling us to stuff, but God has the right to make up his own mind, and God is in charge. And so Paul, even Paul, didn't always get what he wanted or was convinced was the will of God. And so he's talking to them about Timothy. He wants to send Timothy, who we will look at as Paul's right-hand guy, but he can't spare him right now. He needs Timothy to complete his ministry. And so he's sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi for a number of reasons. One, that they would be encouraged because he had gotten sick and almost died. They'd heard that somehow. They didn't even know the outcome. So he wanted to send Epaphroditus back to them to encourage them that he's well, to celebrate the goodness of God in that uh, protection, and so that he can give a report about Paul and the ministry that he sent him to do and encourage them. So the occasion is Epaphroditus going to Philippi. The purpose of the letter is encouragement, which includes challenge, by the way. When we think of encouragement, how do we define it? It's the free church you can answer. Hmm? Mm hmm Lifting them up. We tend to think of encouragement as, well done, good job, everybody gets a trophy. 
I mean, it's the kind of, hey, that was awesome. And that's part of it. But it's also challenging. It's, it's saying, wait a minute, we got to step it up here. There are things that we need to consider that we're not considering. It's the kind of challenge that says, well done. Now, how do we do this better? What, what are we not doing well? And so Paul sends this letter as stimulation and encouragement to the fellow believers and partners in the gospel at Philippi. That's the theme. I think the theme for the letter is found in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. We've looked at it a number of times. I want to take us back there because what we're going to read today is an illustration of that and an illustration of what we have seen earlier in chapter 2. Philippians 1, starting at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm going to encourage you, you can go back and listen to those messages, or wrestle with the idea of what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? It doesn't mean that we earn salvation. It means that we walk worthy in the gospel that we have received. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What do you see in the inclusion of the gospel there that we very seldom talk about? The privilege of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul goes on to explain that in more detail as he challenges the Philippians to be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's the way the New American Standard translates chapter 2, verse 3. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. He uses Christ's example of humbling himself to death, even the death on a cross. The gospel cost Christ his life. Yes? And he also uses the example of Paul. Paul uses his own example because he gave up his life for the sake of the gospel. In fact, in the section right before what we're looking at today, he says, if, I pour, if my life is poured out as a drink offering, in other words, if I shed my blood for the sake of you, I do it with great joy. Why? Because the gospel is more important than his life. He would rejoice. Paul was willing to give his life for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Philippians. And we're going to see that what Paul encourages the Philippians to do is to do the same, right? We saw it in Philippians 2, 1 through 18. And now what he's going to do is lift up two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as living illustrations of the very thing that he talked about. So often we think of the gospel as for us, and it is, but it's not just for us. It's that we be saved 
transform and become transforming in the lives of others. We become ministers of reconciliation. That's the gospel. And what he's going to say, Paul's going to elevate a couple of guys today and say, listen, here are two men who illustrate that very truth. So turn in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. On the surface, this looks like Paul's travel plans, his itinerary, but it's way more than that. And I struggled a little bit with how to break this up to preach it so we might get it. You know, it's obviously divided Timothy and Epaphroditus. But in some ways, the real contrast here is Timothy and Epaphroditus versus those who are unlike them. He's talking about the character of two faithful men. So the way I've divided this up is characteristics of Timothy and E and the contrast with the others. So what do we read about Timothy? He's unique. Paul says, I have no one like him. Now, what's strange to you about that phrase and Paul writing it in a letter? Some of them are reading the letter. <laughs> Some of the people that are around him are saying, what am I, chopped liver? What's so special about Tim? Paul is elevating a guy, complimenting a guy, calling to attention a guy who is absolutely faithful. And that strikes at our sensibilities, doesn't it? We tend to think in America we're all the same. We all get trophies. We all do this. But in the church, we say the same thing. I've heard people the last few years say, well, I don't like the term leadership. It implies that somebody's better. No, it implies that somebody's different. And so what Paul is saying about Timothy is nobody's like him. The word translated no one like him literally means like-minded or sold. I have no one else that is like-sold with me or like-minded. Does that phrase sound familiar? Earlier in chapter 2, he said, I want you to be like-minded. His heart beats 
with Paul's. Timothy is, in a real sense, uniquely Paul's soulmate in the gospel and in ministry. Now, remember, there was a time when Paul and Barnabas and Mark went together, and they ended up dividing and splitting ways. Mark came back later, but, but the, the problem Excuse me, the sense there is that Mark wasn't united with them in their soul and in their ministry. Timothy's heart beats with Paul's. They're in step with each other regarding the reality and the priority of the gospel, not only for the lost, but the priority of the gospel for those who already named the name of Christ in the church in Philippi. The gospel for the believers individually, for the unsaved, and for the believers corporately. Timothy uniquely shoulders the burden of the gospel with the Apostle Paul. And Paul has the audacity to say, I don't have anybody else like this. This is the only guy I've ever found that is this close to me in heart and soul and priority. He uniquely shares Paul's burdens. He isn't simply a fan of Paul. He's a partner and a servant of Paul. He has committed to serving the gospel by serving the apostle Paul. It's not hero worship. Paul's going to later say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. But Timothy is saying, I will serve the gospel by serving this apostle called by God for a unique task. Paul goes on to say his concern for the Philippians was genuine. It was authentic. It was sincere. It wasn't fate. Timothy was not in prison with Paul, but he served with Paul while he was in prison. What happened while Paul was in prison? That's a vague question, I just realized. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote these letters. Timothy serving Paul was there as Paul wrote. He was partnered in that, and he heard him pray, no doubt. He caught the gospel, God's heart for the Philippians. But more than that, he caught Paul's heart for the Philippians. He, his concern was genuine, and very much we say, much of the gospel is caught, not taught, Right? And so Timothy was taught a lot from the Apostle Paul, but he also caught the heart of the gospel. Here's Paul in chains for the sake of Christ, still praying, still rejoicing, still encouraging the Philippians. So far that it, so much that he said, listen, if this costs me my life, you're worth it. And Timothy learned it, and he caught it, and it consumed him as well as Paul. Not everyone is uniquely called or qualified for the same ministry. Timothy realized, God has his hand on this guy, and I'm going to serve this guy for the sake of the gospel. And as Paul died, Timothy continued in his ministry in the name of the Lord, but also in some sense in the name of Paul. Does that make sense? People would say, you want to learn something? Walk with this man who walked with Paul, and they both walked with Christ. How cool is that? The, the third thing that I noticed is he wasn't competing with Paul. In verse 23, Paul describes Timothy as a son. He served with Paul as a son. 
In his first letter to Timothy, you know that Paul wrote a couple letters to Timothy on how to do ministry, and he, he called him his true son in the faith. Paul had mentored Timothy like a son. Epaphroditus, he didn't lead to the Lord. Timothy, evidently, Paul led to the Lord, and he mentored him throughout his growing up days. And because Paul mentored him, Timothy said, I'm walking with this guy. And so, in a sense, this was uniquely Paul's son. You can hear, you can almost read between the black and in the white here, and Paul saying, that's my boy. That's my boy, spiritually. How rare to find that kind of a devoted follower of Christ and partner in ministry. And the indication is that Timothy had, Timothy had no sense of usurping Paul's authority. He didn't want to replace Paul. He didn't want Paul to leave. He served Paul and in that way served the gospel. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith and devoted servant. That was a privilege and a joy for Timothy, a privilege and a joy for the apostle Paul to watch him and to have him by his side. Let me suggest a parallel here. Remember, I said that the first part of chapter 2 is illustrated in these guys. Philippians 2, 2 and 3, listen to these words and see if they don't ring true about what Paul is saying about Timothy. Philippians 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or compete, conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What Paul is saying is, that's Tim. He's got that. He's doing that. Then he moves on to Epaphroditus. He starts with this. He's a brother in the Lord. They're fellow believers in Christ. Any of you have really good unsaved friends? Two of you? Come on, help me here. I hope there's more than that because that's where the gospel is moved. I had a young guy in ministry say, hey, what's your strategy for reaching Post Falls? I said, the people in the pews. Mentoring people who mentor people. That's the strategy. Work well for Jesus. But I will say this. Well, I have great unsaved friends, and we've, some of us have been friends for like a thousand years, or it just feels like that when I get up in the morning. But there is a difference between those kinds of relationships and relationships that are built around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's a fellowship. There's a brotherhood with those who are concerned about Christ, who have experienced the grace of God, and it is different, is it not? It, there's, a, there's a brotherhood. People talk about the brotherhood in, in the military or on basketball teams, I, Dude, I got a, 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 one of those things on here. Facebook message from one of the guys I played with in Chicago. It was his birthday. He's old. I mean, he's picking old. And we were just laughing about that. After all these years, still friends. But it wasn't just the basketball. It was the brotherhood of studying and working out the gospel together. He's a brother. He's a companion in, the, in labor. What does the word labor mean? It means work. And roll up your sleeves and get it done. It's hard work. It means an associate or a helper or a partner. They, they say, let's get this done. No excuses. Let's get it done. This 
is Paul's ministry. And I got to tell you that the labor that Paul was called to was not so glorious. Where is he writing from? Prison. The disciples, remember, they really wanted to serve Jesus. And then when Jesus went to be crucified, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't get that part of the story, although he had said it. Here's the apostle Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus are serving him in prison. His ministry, his calling was rather inglorious. They didn't have posters up and say, come and see the apostle Paul in jail. Epaphrodite wasn't in it for fame or for fortune. He was in it because he was committed for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the man called to deliver the gospel to the various churches. How many of the letters would have been written without Timothy and Epaphroditus? Very few, if any, because Paul would have been dead. He's a fellow soldier. Soldiers don't compete, they complete, especially in battle. I never had the privilege of being in the military, but everybody tells me boot camp is for one thing, to get rid of you, get rid of the me, and induce us to we. <laughs> We're, they're brothers in the battle, and, and they realize that it's the battle they're training for. Without the threat of the battle, without the battle, there is not that camaraderie and that oneness. Epaphroditus was a fellow soldier, and he was a servant. Why was Epaphroditus with Paul? Because the church sent him. Epaphroditus was a deacon. He was sent by the church to minister to the care of Saul, Paul. When we go to jail today, if we go to jail today, it's not like it was during this time period, nor is it like it is in many parts of the world. Jail today, and I'm all for this, cares for prisoners. You get fed, you get clothed, you get full health insurance, you get all of that. In Paul's day, how was Paul supported? Friends and family. If they didn't feed him, he didn't live. They didn't clothe him. He froze. If they didn't minister to his needs, his needs weren't met. So here's Epaphroditus. He's doing what he can do to support Paul so Paul can do the work of the ministry. Epaphrodites is on assignment from the church in Philippi to minister to the man who ministers to them. It's not a glorious thing. Although Epaphroditus, we see the name in other epistles, a lot of commentators don't think it's the same guy. In essence, if Paul didn't call attention to this guy, we would never know who he is till we get to heaven. His name isn't in the lights. It's not the marquee. Come and see Paul and E. All he was was a servant. All he was was a servant to the man who wrote most of our New Testament. And Paul said, honor these men rightly. And he risked his life. Somehow he got sick, very much like the prisons were different, so were the hospitals. <laughs> 
In our day, let's be honest, we gripe about the health system and we gripe about the cost and we gripe about this. But when you get sick, what do you expect? To get better. We all do. We go to the doctor, we go to specialists, we go to this, and if they don't have the medicine to make us better, we expect that they will design it and discover it by Friday. We live in a culture for the first time in history, really, and the only culture in many parts of the world where we expect to get better. And 90% of the time, we do. In Paul's day, when they got really sick, they didn't expect to get better. It was a miracle if they did. I had the opportunity, my first time in Ethiopia, things have changed a little bit, but there was a hospital there. It had been a mission hospital. When the communists took over Ethiopia, they took over the hospital. And we went and visited it. You know what it was? It was a place with beds where you went to die so you didn't infect the rest of the family. They had a little medicine cabinet, and all they had in there was a few bottles of aspirin or ibuprofen. Or... But if you came out of that hospital, it was a shock to people. That's, I believe, the picture of what Paul is saying. Epaphroditus got sick, close to death sick. In fact, God was gracious to spare him for my sake, for your sake as the readers, and for his sake, reveled in God's goodness in sparing this invaluable man. And he says, welcome him honor him. Such men are worthy of honor. They'll never have notoriety, but they're worthy of being honored because of their faithfulness. Let's look at the contrasts. Philippians 2.21, it's really the, the primary contrast. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. Paul is contrasting Timothy with whoever these people are. Again, we see a parallel in chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't know who the everyone else here is. If you ask me who's the everyone else, I'm going to give you a very simple, straightforward answer. I have no idea. <laughs> Paul doesn't talk about it. We can speculate. We aren't told. Obviously, it isn't every other human being, otherwise Epaphroditus wouldn't be in there, although there's even a unique relationship with Timothy from Epaphroditus. Perhaps there were others who were sent with Epaphroditus when he took the care and the, and the goods to Timothy, whether it was clothes or money or food. They probably bought food when they got there. Maybe what Paul is saying is everybody else has left. When the going got tough and it got uncomfortable, they left. Only Epaphroditus is still here. Timothy. Perhaps it was some of those who Paul described as preaching the gospel out of envy or rivalry in chapter 1. Now, he talks about those in Philippi, but there may have been those who, who knew Paul but wanted to make his life increasingly miserable for whatever reason. There, maybe it was... Those who wanted to compete with Paul because they, they viewed themselves as equal or better. Who does he think he is? Perhaps it was 
the people Paul described in the section right before this that Neil so aptly led us through who grumbled and argued. We don't know. Perhaps it's simply a contrast between the average person who experienced Paul's ministry and this young man, Timothy, who said, I'm all in with Christ and with you. Whatever you need, I'll do. And the bottom line contrast is between those who sought their own interests or their own interests competed with the primary interest of the gospel versus these men whose interest was focused on the gospel and serving the people in Philippi. I would encourage you, look at John chapter 3. I want you to read the whole book of 3 John. one chapter, so it won't take you all that long, right? But there's a man in there who John describes as just the opposite of these two guys, and, and the contrast is extreme. John talks about a guy named Diotrephes in Third John who always wanted to be first. He wanted to be prominent. He wanted to be preeminent. He wanted to be noticed, and so whatever he did, he did to focus attention on him. Paul said, be like these guys. John said, watch out for this guy. Okay, so what are some points of application? I wrote these down. I want you to write your own down. Is that fair? My applications aren't your applications. Your applications aren't my applications, but there are applications. Here's the first one I wrote down. We're to emulate these men. We're to emulate these men, faithful servants, serving others serving others, even to our own detriment. If the gospel is going to be effective, we need to be people who don't care who gets the credit. We serve the gospel by serving others. We're to be like these men. So it's easy to serve when what? When it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to serve when it's easy, when it's convenient, when we don't have to go out of our way, when it, doesn't, when it fits into our schedule, when whatever. These men served to the point of almost dying. Second observation is this. It takes everyone. Timothy was not Paul. Epaphroditus was not Timothy. They were all brothers, fellow workers, partners in the gospel. But we wouldn't have the New Testament if it wasn't for Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul probably would have died in the prison. There are different roles and different functions, but co-laborers. In our culture, we kind of have this anti-leadership bias. Have you noticed? Don't tread on me, all that. But even in our church cultures at times, and I think we've got to be very careful about putting pastors or leaders or worship leaders or whatever on a pedestal. That's so dangerous. At the same time, there are times when those people who are gifted in a particular area stink at other areas. And what Timothy and Epaphroditus did with Paul is they came alongside and supported them. As recipients of the gospel, they supported them. We tend to be, I've even heard in the last few years, people, re, they hate the word leadership in the church. 
because we're all equal. We all have an equal voice. Paul was called to be an apostle. He had a different voice. And Timothy and Epaphroditus served him. Now, he wasn't infallible. He didn't even get it right that he was going to come to them. But they served this man as God's servant. The third thing I wrote down is find these kind of men and women. Look for them. When I told that young guy the strategy for reaching Post Falls and North Idaho and Eastern Washington is people. Paul said that to Timothy. Paul writes Timothy some instruction letters in 1 and 2 Timothy. And listen to what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. Let me paraphrase that. Timothy, find another Timothy and pour into him. The way to build an army of disciple makers is find people who want to be disciple makers and disciple them and watch what happens. You can't stop that. So Paul tells Timothy, find faithful men. Now, what's the implication? Not everybody is. You got to find faithful men and women. You got to find them. And how do you find them? You test them. Now, one of the dilemmas in this is I've been doing this two years now. I knew when she was just a kid. Junior high? No wonder I hurt in the morning. But I will tell you, over the years, there are those who I thought, man, that's a faithful person. That's a faithful person. They're going to be great for the kingdom of God. And they flake. And there are those that I work with who look like flakes and they become great in the kingdom of God. I remember having a conversation at one time thinking, that kid's going to kill somebody or get killed. Well, he's now Pastor Killer. He should have been in jail. So it's so hard to know what God's going to do, but what Paul tells Timothy is find them. And if you want to build a ministry or you want to be an impactor in the, in the kingdom of God, find people who are faithful men and women and link arms with them and see what happens. The fourth one is like that. I would say get on a team. Find someone or someone's and I know that's not a word with whom you can and serve well without reservation. I hear often as I've been in ministry, people say, well, that church just isn't meeting my needs. I'm just not a fit. Some of that. But you know what? Then find a place you are and you'll get off the bench. Find a place with someone or some ones with whom you can serve and hit it hard together. Get after it. So Paul talks in another place about being unequally yoked, and we use that in marriage, and I think it applies in marriage. If you're not married, consider someone who is running hard after Christ if you want to run hard after Christ. Because if you get stuck with a person who's not running hard after Christ, you're not going to run hard after Christ. I guarantee it. You can't. It's a hindrance. 
If you're here and you're a couple and you say, I want to run hard after Christ, then do it together for goodness sakes. Link arms and find someone who will mentor you in the process, not in your marriage, not just in your marriage, but focused around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, a marriage is just a marriage. Find somebody with whom you can link arms and for the rest of your life link souls. Over the years, I've had a lot of dear friends that we do a lot of stuff with. We hunt and fish, and by God's grace, the godly ones ski. (laughs) (laughs) But friendships that are based just on activity wane, like John said. I can't ski like I used to ski. That was never that good. But everything hurts when I try and ski that way. I don't play basketball with the guys I played basketball with. You know why? None of us became orthopedic surgeons. (laughs) But I will tell you this. Those over the course of the years that have linked arm in ministries, I get texts from or phone calls from. Laura Osterhage, Laura Smith. That's not her, but she looks a lot like her, so now I call her Laura Jr. She joined our youth ministry team years ago. And every time we see them, it's like we never missed a beat. Although her kids who are now teenagers and above are shocked that they used to ha- her parents used to have fun, so I have to inform them. I have pastor friends that I don't know very well. I have a man who I met this summer at a men's retreat. He texts me one a week, once a week and says, I'm praying for you. Those are the relationships that stand the test of time and take you deeper in a way that no other relationship matches. I'm going to close with the phrase that Dia prayed again in the first service. She left you out, so I'm helping you. Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. And may your interests be our interests today, tomorrow, this week. And give us men and women with whom we can knit our lives and souls for the glory of God and give up our lives because compared to the glory of God, they don't matter much. In Jesus' name, amen.